What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. service public affairs show. fielding calls from reporters making sure that that relationship is nurtured and built and grown over a period of time and our credibility is there. the fbi can't do what it does without help from the citizen and when it knocks on their doors and asks for help the more we're able to provide a full picture of what the fbi does and who we are the more the public will respect us public's cooperation with the bureau is essential the real true story of the fbi is largely one of expertise success dedication it's all about, like you said, trust, credibility, relationship building. At the end of the day, we're accountable to the public we serve. In this week that followed the firing of an FBI agent, revelations of lying by FBI personnel regarding the investigation of Dr. Larry Nasser at USA Gymnastics, and deeply compelling testimony by top Olympic gymnasts, I can't think of a more appropriate guest than the man who led public affairs for the FBI. At the time of our recording, which was prior to the public hearings and testimony by the director and the inspector general, Assistant Director Brian Hale was in his final days at the Bureau, having decided to accept a position in the private sector. Brian spoke candidly about the challenges of managing the public face of the FBI. We are thrilled to have you, Brian. You are really a leader of the public face of the FBI as head of the National Press Office. Your title's assistant director. Um, now we get to kind of go behind the scenes of that public face of the FBI and learn more about how you interact um, with the press, the public, and all you do to promote the work of the Bureau and make sure that folks in the media are getting it right. So thanks for joining us. Thank you, Frank. It's good to be here with you. Let's start as we always do with our guests and go into your journey into the FBI. Tell us where you came from, what your background is, and how you came to be the head of the FBI's National Press Office. Well, this is actually the second time I've uh, been part of the FBI. 
Uh, I started initially back in 2007 after I had been working as a journalist at ABC News for a number of years. And then I had taken a uh, foray into working for a Washington, D.C.-based law firm. Uh, at some point, though, having watched my cousin serve uh, as an FBI agent and uh, recognizing that there was a desire within me to serve uh, the government and to serve the country, I uh, was able to join the FBI through a person that I had worked with closely at ABC News, John Miller. And initially when I came in in 2007, uh, I was a public affairs officer and I was assigned to the National Press Office. And uh, I had a portfolio where I would engage the press uh, with uh, on any story that related to counterterrorism, uh, weapons of mass destruction, and I had a specific portfolio. And I loved the job. So for two years, my first federal government job was uh, coming in to learn the FBI and to learn the FBI way, which I know you're very familiar with, Frank. So I almost immediately felt at home uh, here. Uh, a lot of that is because I have a law enforcement uh, family history. My dad was a special agent at a different uh, federal agency, and my grandfather had been a chief of police in Kentucky for a number of um, years. So I felt like law enforcement was in my blood, and this kind of felt like a, a good fit. And of course, when you come into the Bureau and you learn the Bureau way, there you learn about how not just the impressive history of the Bureau, but also the, just the mission, the mission. It's the best mission in government. And I say that all the time. I mean, the amount of work that the FBI is able to do in any given day, cutting across a huge set of mission uh, is, is super impressive. So, you know, I was uh, focused uh, primarily on, you know, public affairs work, but in, from the perch here, I was able to learn a great deal about the Bureau and I, and I loved it. And um, at some point I was also placed on a cyber portfolio, which was pretty nascent back in that day. I think I don't even think the iPhone was out yet, uh, but we were seeing a lot of uh, big, sort of the beginnings of of cyber crime, and so I felt like I was kind of in on the ground floor on with with what the FBI was doing there. So my career sort of then took an unexpected turn a couple of years later when I uh, was offered a significant promotion to come and lead a, a major team at DHS ICE, and I was there for about four and a half years leading a team of about forty five people on their mission. And so having that experience, the grounding in the FBI, but then going over to DHS was super valuable. And I got to see sort of, you know, how the FBI is a partner from the outside. And then I was hired by the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, and I joined the intelligence community and in that role as running public affairs for the office of the director of national intelligence. So I worked with um, former DNI Clapper and also worked for Dan Coates uh, as a career professional kind of bridging the administrations. So in that role, you know, with the intelligence community role, it's not overt in the same way as the FBI is, but I learned again, a great deal about the FBI's work on the intelligence side, something that I had very limited exposure to in my first run. And then ultimately after a 10 year break from being at the FBI, I was uh, approached by um, director Chris Ray and uh, to come back and to be the assistant director and to lead the office of public affairs. And, um, I, you know, the second I spoke with him and uh, the deputy director, former deputy director, David Bowditch, I was hooked and coming back. And when I walked in back in the door, Frank, it was like coming home. Yeah. Totally coming I, home. I, I, I'm sure it was. And, you know, 
I think everybody always thinks about the gun and badge special agent, but doesn't understand that in some of the most senior roles, uh, some of the most essential roles in the FBI, there are folks without, that are not carrying that badge and gun, but are carrying a wealth of experience and diversity like you. I mean, that combination of journalism, private sector, and then DNI, DHS, um, prior FBI experience just sounds like um, you landed right where you belong. I know many of us, many of the public, when they turn on the TV, the evening news at night, or read the paper, or go online, and they read an FBI story, that's, that's their perception of the FBI. Let's talk about how the sausage is made, how that messaging gets out to them. Even when they tune into entertainment um, for movies and television in the evening, they're watching CSI or Criminal Minds or other FBI shows. That That's all part of what you guys do. So give us a typical day for you in the National Press Office and for your teams. Let's Let's talk about how you even come up to speed on what's going on every day and night in the FBI, who gets briefed, who you brief. Give us a give us a day in the life, if you will. Sure. And I think that as you laid out, it can really touch on all of those different aspects. Um, so, um, you know, the media to pop culture, uh, social media, Congress, all of it. So a typical day really, uh, as it can be an atypical day too, right? But in a typical day, um, there is usually a, set of morning meetings that involve the, the director and the deputy director. Um, these are largely focused on informing the senior leadership of the bureau as to significant matters. Um, for example, if there's going to be a major arrest or takedown, that would be something that would be briefed. If there's been some type of event that's occurred somewhere in the world, terrorist attack, some type of other significant cyber incident, that is something where operationally that information is shared. Now, those of us, to, to what you mentioned before, those of us that are not uh, on the operational side, per se, are also um, sitting right there so that we can essentially receive the most current information on all these different types of developments. So if the morning meetings kind of give you sort of a framing um, as to where things are, state of play, um, there may be some initiatives that are going to be announced. We from public affairs may actually um, participate in the meeting by proactively sharing some information, some uh, media inquiries that have been coming in overnight um, or, or throughout the course of the, of the day that are important for the director or deputy to know, certain narratives that are out there. There may be a press conference uh, that's of some level of significance that would rise to uh, a national level uh, story, either here in the Washington, the national capital region, or out in the field. So, so between the operational announcements and our public affairs tracking of some of the issues, um, that's where that information is shared. Then uh, the rest of the day is spent um, meeting with my own team here in the Office of Public Affairs where they're providing a series of inputs as to uh, their work throughout the course of the day or the week. At any given minute, any given moment, 24-7, I am contacted by reporters uh, who are a lot of times, um, you know, it's not always something that's on the record, right? They're not always asking for a specific official comment. You know, I would actually say that probably 80 to 90% of my engagement with reporters, at least in my job now, is really just they're bouncing different ideas off of me about upcoming stories or they have fragments of information that they want to validate or get some guidance on. So a lot of what goes on during the course of my day, frankly, when I engage reporters is helping to shape stories or provide information to make sure that when they are covering the FBI, that they are 
you know, that it's as accurate as possible. And also we're able to kind of push them off of information that may be false or incorrect. So other things that can happen throughout the course of the day are meeting with the operational and support divisions. If there's a specific uh, initiative, let's say the cyber division is doing, my team will be working with them to put forward uh, a series of, of outreach uh, proposals so that we can uh, get the messaging out of a specific, you know, division, let's say it's the cyber division and they want to get some more information out, we may be pulling together a, you know, a series of campaigns, uh, social media campaigns in support of their messaging. And the other thing I would say that's important is we're constantly in touch with the Department of Justice, the, the public affairs team at the Department of Justice, and also our other law enforcement and intelligence community colleagues. Because I see the FBI as a leader in that space, and I want to make sure that, especially that we are sharing information as much as we can when it comes to what we're hearing uh, in the press or issues we're dealing with or significant matters that we're handling, um, that we're making sure that we're sharing that with our, our partners. So a lot of our communications also with the other public affairs shops across. And then we, of course, uh, you know, there's always a TV or TVs multiple on. We're always uh, uh, in the background. We're constantly, um, uh, sometimes I see you up there, Frank, and uh, yeah. I, will, I will stop what I'm doing to hear what you have to say. Um, but I also will tell you there's a lot of social media monitoring. Um, and when I say monitoring, I mean that in the sort of general sense, right? I don't mean in the law enforcement sense. I mean right. that we are watching to see what narratives are out there, what stories are out there. It's just the way people are communicating. I'm sure, Brian, that sometimes when you're watching me, you're going, well, Frank Frank got that wrong. Like, like I've got, like I've already referred to you as the head of the National Press Office, and the correct title is that you're the head of the public affairs office um, and assistant director, but that's, I'm slipping back into my old bad bureau mindset and you've got the whole bailiwick of public affairs. But I want to, I want to zero in on something you said, because you said a lot of your day, and I'm sure it's true for your team, is spent fielding calls from reporters and reporters who generally are trying to get it right. Tell me about the challenge of, of helping that reporter either back off of a story that is just going in the wrong direction. Maybe it's just factually wrong, um, would waste a lot of time, um, or even on a far more serious note, might actually jeopardize an ongoing investigation. How do you handle that kind of thing with, with the media? Well, that those are the tricky, right? That's, that's a tricky uh, set of concerns that you can deal with on a regular basis in some cases. First of all, let me just be clear. I have a great team here at the Office of Public Affairs and across the board, and I'm sure we'll talk about them a little bit later, but the National Press Office itself, those are the folks that are, that are really the tip of the spear when it comes to engaging the press. So they're having conversations constantly themselves. I've got a, a good team of folks. We also have public affairs officers in the field, in the 56 field offices. Those folks are also constantly in contact with the National Press Office, flagging significant issues that they think are going to be of, of importance. So the internal communication between what we have within our press office here and in the field and sharing that information is critical. But to get to your point, when I receive some type of you know, call uh, and I'm asked to offer some type of guidance, it is, it's very clear that first and foremost, I have some type of trusted relationship with these reporters. Um, it's all about, at the end of the day, making sure that there is a recognition about the importance of the, of the role that these reporters have when they cover the FBI. And to understand that it's very important to our democracy that we have a free press and that they're doing their jobs. We, on the other hand, are doing our jobs to, uh, you know, to protect the nation and uphold the Constitution. And it's important that we have that we start with a clear recognition and respect for one another's roles. The second part of it 
is making sure that that relationship is nurtured and, and built and grown over a period of time and that our credibility is there. So um, I am constantly making sure that when I provide uh, any type of guidance or uh, even advice uh, off, off the record, that I am being as truthful and straightforward as I can uh, and also setting expectations. There's going to be certain things I can't talk about. And when you have a respectful relationship with someone you've built over the course of a number of years, you can say to them, you know what, I'm not getting into that. That's a, that's a classified matter or that's a law enforcement sensitive matter. Um, sorry, man, I'm just not talking about that, right? And that's that that only works when you really have built a trusted relationship over time. Uh, the other thing I'm constantly on the lookout for is also is making sure that whatever narratives that are out there, especially false narratives that are that we challenge them effectively. And the way to do that, I think, is you know, is to provide facts um, that we might have available to us. In some cases, that's going to require trusting the reporter to not actually report that fact and making sure there's a clear understanding. Look, I'm going to tell you some information here. And again, we want to make sure we're not crossing any lines with regard to classification or uh, the sensitivity of any, any investigation. So you're, this is a very sort of a very tight rope you walk on. But the bottom line is you have to make sure that, that you're not putting them out or that they're not going forward, I should say, in a way that's going to write an incorrect story because that's going to be bad for their credibility. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of the day, we want things to be accurate and correct. And when we can't talk about it, we just say it. We're not talking about that. And, and you know, go to other sources. Yeah. So it sounds, Brian, like there's there's really two parts to the, the challenge of dealing with sensitive uh, reporter inquiries. The one you've just explained, which is making sure they get it right, telling them kind of they're, they're going down the wrong track. The, the other would be where what they're going to report or what they're working on might actually jeopardize a very sensitive, perhaps even national security investigation, perhaps even endanger the life of an undercover agent or informant. How do you deal with that? That's always the most important thing, right? Because you definitely don't want to put anyone's life at risk. Um, you also want to make sure that you're protecting sources and methods and investigative techniques. And so I think that's a tough one. And I think that's where, again, the trusted relationships you've built over a period of time are, are critical. There have been times, for example, when, well, many times, and in fact, too many times, where there has been a leak of classified information or some kind of uh, re revelation of some sources and methods. And so that is where I get involved into some level of negotiation with the reporter, either directly or sometimes their editors or their news management. There have been times when I've literally, uh, you know, had to essentially get into a, an, an Uber or a taxi and go to a, uh, you know, the bureau uh, of a major news organization and sit down and meet with their, with their um, leadership to ask them to refrain from reporting something classified. Before that usually happens, though, there's usually a series of steps that have to take place. One is to make sure that we're uh, crystal clear with our own operational FBI folks to ensure that we have a clear understanding of what's at stake. The second thing is if there's any partners involved, a lot of times these investigations and intelligence sharing involve other agencies and also other countries. And so there's a lot of different sensitivities there. So uh, many times there's a sort of sort of everyone gets together and has a conversation about sort of what are the red lines? What are we specifically asking for? What are steps we can take to mitigate damage if this is revealed? And so I will then go forward and represent the FBI uh, in some cases. And sometimes I actually represent more than just the FBI uh, to put forward an ask to have a specific news organization withhold information. Now, in some cases, if it's a direct threat to life, these news organizations will make 
the call to withhold the information. In some cases, if it's a specific or particular critical source or method, they may also decide to do that. But many times they'll, they'll, there'll be some type of negotiation where they will, um, I use the term muddy up. Sometimes they will kind of obscure or, or sort of ensure that they are not too descriptive on a specific type of uh, technology or resource or an individual. So sometimes the best you can hope for is that they will take some steps in the writing of the piece, uh, the story that they actually will not uh, provide too many details uh, or, or uh, or that will reveal something, or that they will agree to at least withhold people's uh, true names. So that's always um, a tricky one. And I have found that in some cases we prevail and they do that. In other cases, they're willing to withhold for a period of time, and but then say ultimately they are going to go forward with the story. So sometimes it just buys you time. And sometimes all you need, Frank, is time to be able to put it into your mitigation strategy so that if it's going to impact a specific operation, that you have at least bought enough time to allow the operators to adjust accordingly. And then some cases you just don't prevail. And that's some, there's some news outlets out there that really uh, just want to reveal things. Yeah. They, they really don't care about it. Yeah. The balance of, uh, of free press and uh, security is a tricky one. And uh, it's all about, like you said, trust, credibility, relationship building. Let's take a moment so I can share a brand new sponsor with you that I'm really excited about. It's Green Chef, and we're using it at our home. Green Chef has a meal plan for every healthy lifestyle, keto, paleo, plant-powered diets, or even if you just want to have delicious but balanced dishes. Green Chef's expert chefs curate every recipe, and with over 30 meal choices every week and the flexibility to switch plans, you'll never have to sacrifice taste for nutrition. You can enjoy restaurant-quality dishes in the comfort of your own home. And with pre-portioned, easy-to-follow recipes delivered right to you, eating well has never been simpler. Never worry about having to plan or shop for dinner again. Green Chef is also America's number one meal kit for eating well, meaning they're the best meal kit whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, pescatarian, or you just want to eat more balanced meals. If, like me, you're fed up with high restaurant prices or you run out of time to get to the supermarket, give Green Chef a try. Go to greenchef.com slash frank100 and use code frank100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash frank100, code frank100. The number one meal kit for eating well can come to your door with Green Chef. All right, let's hit pause for a 60-second break so we can chat about Audible. If you're listening to podcasts, you may prefer listening to your books. Sometimes there's a greater connection to the subject matter, the author, and the story when I listen to the books on my reading list. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. At Audible, you find the largest selection of audiobooks, from bestsellers and new releases to business, motivation, and more, including, well, my own bestseller, The FBI Way, inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. You'll find it and thousands more titles on Audible. I listen to Audible when I'm on long drives or if I'm logging some miles on the treadmill. It helps me make the best use of my time. And as an Audible member, you'll get one credit Every month, good for any title in the entire premium selection. The latest bestsellers, new releases, or that certain title you've been meaning to pick up. 
Those titles are yours to keep forever. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Because you're listening to The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi, just visit audible.com slash bureau or text bureau to 500-500. Now let's get back to our guest. You mentioned the great team that you have, Brian. Break down the the public affairs office for us, all the various units, missions from the folks who deal with, oh gosh, this podcast, um, for example, the public uh, and uh, entertainment, you know, all of that, Hollywood, TV shows, and then um, uh, right on up to, like, as you said, dealing with the, the press, internal comms. Tell us how it breaks down. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, first of all, like I mentioned, a, a great team between 65 and 70 people here at FBI headquarters in Washington. Uh, again, that's separate and apart from the, uh, you know, several, well, I would say maybe a hundred, maybe to 200, depending on how we count, of uh, folks that are operating in the field um, that are doing public affairs work specific to their division. But here at the Office of Public Affairs in Washington, uh, we're divided into two broad sections. We have a strategic communication section and then we have a media and, and engagement section. And what that broadly, what that means is essentially we, we, we're a full service public affairs shop. Okay. It's, we've talked about the national press office. Those are the folks that handle the incoming press calls from the national media. They're the ones that are also engaging the field public affairs officers to be tracking uh, news stories across the country. They're the ones that are going to be involved in helping to set up press conferences announcements, public announcements, interviews, if we have an interview request. The National Press Office is going to be handling that. Uh, they, there's also a component within the press office that handles investigative publicity. All the stuff that you see when it comes to us trying to locate uh, top 10 fugitives, uh, terrorists, uh, all the stuff you might be seeing on January 6th where we're putting out uh, a lot of different imagery about individuals we're looking for or people that were involved over the some of the violence over the last summer. Uh, or even currently now, if we're looking for somebody, the investigative publicity unit has a, diff- a lot of different types of tools at their disposal through the through the, the mainstream press, through social media, through other uh, relationships they have with uh, digital billboard companies around the country to, to help us um, solicit uh, tips on how to locate individuals. The, that same team also uh, uh, has, the, uh, has an outreach to Hollywood uh, and the publishing and entertainment industries, which is super important to us. You know, the FBI, you know, has, has you know, in our long history has had some, uh, a lot of uh, favorable news coverage, I'm sorry, favorable coverage in the popular culture, a lot of films and television series based on the FBI and our work. So they are the folks that will be talking to the directors, producers, showrunners, writers, folks that have ideas um, for different streaming networks, broadcast networks, uh, some of the cable networks. Um, if they're doing a show or a documentary, for example, on the FBI, they can come to us and get some level of guidance. Uh, and that can be everything from providing our historian uh, who can answer some of their questions to also sort of giving them a sense of, you know, how do FBI agents work uh, or, you know, how do our analysts, uh, how do they talk? How do they work? Where do they, you know, what's their, what's their daily work life like? And so that's an ability for us to inform the public because most people aren't going to ever meet an FBI agent in, in the real life. They're just yeah. not. Yeah, but they're going to see someone on TV, right? Or they're going to see someone that, right, in their, that comes into their home maybe once uh, a week or when they decide to get on, on streaming and see something. So super important. Yeah, the, no, the, I think more than any other agency in government, the 
the FBI relies on its brand and its reputation to get its mission done. The, the, the public's cooperation with the Bureau um, and the mission is essential. The, the FBI can't do what it does without help from, from the citizen and when it knocks on their door, flashes the credentials and asks for help and cooperation. So that shaping of the brand and reputation, getting it right, getting it accurate, um, is, is really essential and part, part of the overall mission. Yeah. You, and you, that's why that's, there's two other divisions yeah. or, or two units here just to kind of close out that part is that are really important to that too. Our community relations unit, these are folks that support our community outreach specialists in the field. They deal with, uh, communities, uh, based, uh, based on faith, ethnicity, um, communities that may have been underserved or may have had historical reasons to be uh, uh, suspicious of law enforcement. That work, we have a, a team here that, that works with the field to ensure we're doing the right thing when we engage those communities. We also have a um, FBI.gov, our website, which is um, you know has a, an immense amount of creative uh, original content, videos, stories. Uh, we also have a social media team, and, and I'm very proud you know, of, of all the work that they do. Uh, just a sample, for example, that you know, right now our Twitter, our national Twitter account, has over five million uh, followers. Uh, so we're reaching an, an incredible amount of people. Um, Two point eight million on Facebook, one point nine on Instagram, and nearly two hundred thousand on YouTube. So all we're we're leveraging all the major uh, social media platforms. Um, that we're able to at this point in time uh, at the national level, plus uh, in the field, they each have their own Twitter account. So we're able to kind of reach a lot of people through social media because that's how they're getting information. And then finally, to kind of close out, we have an executive staff team that keeps us staffed and resourced and doing well. And then we have a speech writing and internal communications team that really focuses not just on what the director, deputy director and leadership say publicly when they're doing uh, major speeches, but also we have 37,000 people at the Bureau. And we want to make sure we're effectively communicating to them internally. So um, we have, you know, a, a whole series of folks that, that need to understand exactly what our priorities are and what uh, different types of initiatives and, and what we're focused on. So that writing team is, is critical to us. That's, that's who we are in a nutshell. Uh, thank you. Appreciate that. And you, you've got, uh, you've keyed in on something that's uh, been top of mind for a while for, for many Americans, and that's the public outreach and kind of the crowdsourcing of crime solving when it comes to the January 6th riot at the Capitol. You mentioned all the Twitter followers of the FBI Twitter account. I'm one of those followers, and that is where many of us are seeing the solicitation of help from the public by the FBI in what appears to me to be unprecedented um, numbers uh, in terms of continually feeding the public um, this image, this video of what went on on January 6th. Can you help us? Can you identify this? Can, can you give us, Brian, some idea of the success of that? Uh, maybe some data uh, behind it? And really, whether you think this is the future of crime solving is this kind of crowdsourcing that's, that you're engaged in right now. I do think it's it's an interesting phenomena, and I do think it's going to continue. Um, and and some of that is just because so much of what we do in our daily lives is either directly documented by ourselves, you know, in addition to any digital trail you're leaving, right? But but people are actually just documenting themselves and what they're doing. And I'm telling you, if you're not documenting yourself, someone's documenting you or or is it close proximity to you so i do think that like this case you know the january 6th case is 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 one of the you know one of the larger cases that ever worked in the history of the fbi 
But what makes it sets it apart is because so many different people uh, provided uh, on their own through by attending uh, or being part of certain types of events, you know, provided some level of digital, potentially what could be digital evidence, right, to, 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 that can be shared with us in law enforcement. And I think one of the key things that we've done is in every incident, whether it's a mass shooting, uh, something like you saw in Las Vegas, uh, whether it's a series of other mass shootings or other different types of horrible tragedies that have happened over the, the country, um, terrorist attacks, et cetera, um, the case of Pensacola, you know, people have phones, they have digital devices with them. In some cases, we're able to exploit that for evidence uh, to be presented uh, to better understand motivation, but also to be put forward in court um, to identify individuals that may be witnesses. So I do think that that is definitely the future. Uh, I, I also think that one of the things we have done that's really been important is we've teamed up with uh, others in the Bureau to ensure that all these tips that come in uh, are effectively sort of triaged. We have a you know digital tip line that anytime there's any sort of major event that occurs, our FBI.gov team and Internet Operations Unit team will work to ensure that all these digital tips that are uh, put out there, that we have a web a portal essentially that allow people to upload video and imagery to help share with us so that we can triage through those and determine what might be valuable and which ones may be valuable in the course of the investigation. So that is a true partnership internally that we have. And that's something that like, to your point, I don't know that really any other agency can or does that in the same way we do. So that's, that's bringing the power of the FBI's brand, the power of the FBI's technical capability, the ability, the ability to recognize um, the importance of gathering evidence wherever we can, and that goes, you know, people are focused on January 6th, but I want to be clear, and the director has also said this before, you know, we've done this in other instances uh, as well. So I, I do think that January 6th one gets, uh, situation gets a lot of attention, but I want to, you know, we have done this and other types of events as well, and it has borne fruit and been valuable to our investigators. Yeah, indeed. C- oh, certainly 9-11 was a huge example of that, the uh, hundreds of thousands of tips coming in from the public. And then on a much more local field office level, you know, we all see kidnapping announcements and reward announcements for various crimes that are occurring. Um, it's, it's, it's all on the increase. You, you mentioned uh, major events. We were talking about January 6, other major events. When the big one happens, and boy, it seems like it happens almost weekly now, whether it's a mass shooting or some form of terrorist attack or big operational takedown that's just going to inundate you with press calls, give us, give us a look at what how that shapes up inside your office. Is it all hands on deck? Is it, you know, weekend duty, night duty? What's going on when, when a big news event is breaking? Well, when a big news event is breaking like that, if we have the ability to plan for it, right, if we know there's going to be a major uh, announcement, uh, for example, we talked about Trojan Shield, which was a pretty successful operation recently where we were able to go after um, a series of folks across the globe that were engaged in uh, illegal activity. Um, if there's something to plan for, then we have the ability to sit down and determine, okay, what's going to be our media press strategy? What are our talking points we're going to carry forward? What's the information, the facts that are important for the public to know? Uh, we can divide up who's going to say what. If we're working with other agencies, we make sure that we know what the FBI's messaging is. And then if we have a, a partner agency, either here in the U.S. or overseas, we have a clear understanding of what they're going to say. We make a determination as to who's the appropriate person to carry the message forward. It does it something the director should be um, walking up to the podium and announcing? Uh, is there someone else in the bureau that's a, maybe a more um, 
appropriate uh, voice for that. Um, so that's all this. And we plan, you know, digital uh, outreach. We can plan what we're going to do for the web. We can plan what we can do uh, for social media. We can do sort of a, a timeline or, of released information to make sure that it's all coordinated. Uh, so we plan all that out. Now, when it's reactive, it is 24-7, by the way, just to answer your question. This job is 24-7. So you can get a call in the middle of the night that something's happened in the U.S. or overseas. Um, and to answer your question, like in some cases, I will be on the phone with the deputy director or one of the uh, assistant directors that leads a particular um, division that might be impacted. I'll give you an example. You know, recently I've been on the phone a lot with the assistant director of our cyber division, Brian Vordren, because, you know, in the case of, you know, solar, you know, actually, well, when he actually came on board, it was Colonial Pipeline and um, some of the other high profile um Seems uh, like hacks we, or weekly ransomware attacks ransomware, are exactly, food exactly. and fuel supply. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so, so I'll be on the phone with him to get sort of clear understanding of what the cyber division is understanding about this. Um, we will also be, I'll be talking to my national press office folks and my section chiefs to make sure that they're tracking what's going on. So some of it is us getting operational information from a, a variety of different sources. I can be getting it at sort of my equivalent level, which is usually sort of what's the top line what do we know at this point in time? Some of the more granular information is flowing constantly to my team so that they can then report back up to us. And I'm on the phone, you know, again, with the, in some cases it's with the director. I'm either down in the director's office and we're having a conversation about it or the deputy director's office. Uh, you know, I'm frequently huddling with the deputy director and director as needed to discuss these matters. Let's take a moment to talk about your safety and security. Imagine if every crime could be halted before it happened. Well, while you can't stop every criminal in their tracks, what if you could deter them? That's what SimpliSafe's new wireless outdoor security camera does. It's wireless, so it can install anywhere, extending SimpliSafe's perimeter of defense from your windows and doors to the far corners of your property. That's right. Simply Safe, the system that U.S. News and World Report names best home security system of 2021 just got even better. This brand new outdoor security camera is engineered with all the advanced tech to help keep you and your family safe. It has an ultra-wide 140-degree field of view, so you can keep watch over your entire yard. It has a 1080p HD resolution with an 8x zoom. That means you can zoom in and clearly see things like faces and license plates to capture critical evidence. And it has an easy-to-remove, rechargeable battery, so it doesn't need an outlet and can go anywhere on your property. This camera has it all, and it integrates with your Simply Safe home security system, extending its protection to the outside. Together, it means every door, window, and room are protected. And now, your property will be too. To learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit simplysafe.com/bureau. Simply Safe is offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash bureau. Okay, let's hit pause so I can share something new from the folks at Wondery Podcasts. It's called Generation Y. That's W-H-Y. Imagine you have two friends who are obsessed with crime, murder, mayhem, and unsolved mysteries. They have a passion for breaking down cases that have been cold for years. Welcome to Generation Y, a podcast where hosts Aaron and Justin 
give startling theories, dive into forensic evidence, and share their bold opinions. They dig deep, looking for answers on cases of missing spouses, mysterious murders, serial killers, and more. One of the newest episodes tells the story of Jody, who was murdered on her way to meet her boyfriend, Luke. Because Luke discovered her body, he was a person of interest. Throughout the trial, he insisted he was innocent, yet was still sentenced to a minimum of 20 years. Was he telling the truth, or is he actually the murderer? In another chilling episode, Peter Bergna's truck crashed off a cliff near Reno. His wife, Renette, died, but Peter survived. Was it an accident, or did he intentionally crash? Generation Y reviews every detail of these cases to uncover the truth. My own interest in unsolved mysteries and crimes started as a young boy, long before I became an FBI agent. If Generation Y was available back then, I'd have listened to it. And now, thankfully, we all can. Listen to the Generation Y podcast on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Now, let's get back to our discussion. You mentioned some real good news stories like Trojan Shield. For our listeners, that's the really neat case where the FBI was selling encrypted communications to bad guys around the world, and they had no idea they were getting their their comms from uh, from the FBI and, and law enforcement, and you took you took them all down seemingly at once. There's so many good news stories. How do you get that out there. Some of us, especially the retired cadre like myself, think, boy, the FBI is not doing enough to tell the good news stories. But in this polarized society that we live in, how do you balance not being out there too much, looking like you're you're bragging or, or pushing the mission? How do you do that? And do you find receptivity um, in the media to good news stories? That's a, that is a very good question. It is tricky. And I do hear from former agents and heck, I hear from family members, right? So I think that that's always the best sounding board, frankly. I think we get sort of wrapped up inside the Washington area sometimes uh, about what the pundits are saying or what we're hearing uh, from the more divisive voices in Congress. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded that that's not the full picture of of the Bureau that's being portrayed across the country. And what gives me um, comfort is every morning we get a series of news clips that have been pulled from around the country. Uh, everywhere. And so when I look at those clips and I see the great news and the great, very positive, largely very positive coverage the FBI gets in local media and local newspapers, television, uh, when we do our takedowns, when we arrest bad people, when we're protecting children, when we're supporting our state and local law enforcement partners, those are the good news, the daily dose of good news FBI stories that are being consumed uh, and and seen uh, across the country. And that doesn't always filter up to the national press. The national press is not always interested in what happened in any given point in time in, in some of the parts of the country. But that's where we actually, we can provide a fuller picture of the Bureau of all the great work the 37,000 men and women are doing here. That's a win. We are always going to have a you know, a situation where there's no victor in the D.C. area, right? There's always going to be the pundits on the left, pundits on the right. There's always going to be people that have uh, different motivations to put forward to attack the Bureau. 
uh, in, in some cases. And that's why I think we don't want to lose sight of that. But I do think that there's certain stories that break through to the public uh, that, you know, that we've talked about at least one of them here, but there's, there's, a, there's a lot more that cut through when we were able to recover the ransomware and the colonial pipeline situation. I think that really played and showed the FBI, FBI's expertise in a way that people may not have realized. And I think that was a positive. I think that, you know, even our work on the number of over 500 people having been arrested for, for the January 6th, even though there's a lot of a sort of politics that, that could be ascribed to that particular event, at the end of the day, that's the FBI doing its job. And whenever we capture a fugitive, somebody that has um, been on the run, that has engaged in uh, you know, violent activity, every day those are wins. Those are wins for us. And to your other, we were talking earlier, to your other point, you know, people see that also in, in fictional portrayals. Uh, as well. So people do have a strong, the, the more we're able to provide a full, broad spectrum picture of who the FBI, what the FBI does and who we are, the more the public will respect us. We don't want to be judged on one counterterrorism case. I'm sorry, one counterintelligence case or one counterterrorism case. We, we really are being judged on the, on the full scope of everything we're doing day in and day out to protect the country. Yeah, great, great point. And, and also, you know, credibility and public trust also um, relates to how the FBI deals with its mistakes. You know, when I was in the Bureau, I worked for a guy who was my unit chief uh, briefly named Robert Philip Hansen, the worst spy in the history of the FBI. He was spying for the Russians for 10 years. And one of the things, you know, it's a horrific catastrophe, quite frankly. But one of the things I admired about at the time, Director Louis Free was him coming out and saying, essentially, and publicly, we screwed up. Um, We we screwed up for 10 years, this guy spied. And here's what we're going to do about it. Here's how we're going to make it right. Here are the changes we're going to make. And then, you know, he, he made them. And I wonder how much of your job is, uh, and, and Chris Ray's job as as the current director, is coming out and saying, yeah, we, we could have done that better. I mean, I think that's accountability, right? And that's at the end of the day, we're accountable to the public we serve. And we hold ourselves to very high standards. And so, you know, with 37,000, again, employees, uh, unfortunately, not everybody's going to live up to that. And we are going to sometimes be a reflection of some of the other problems that we're seeing in, in wider society. And when we make mistakes, we need to own them. And I think you've seen that, right? You know, you've even seen the director um, come forward, uh, and, you know, and, and talk about sort of the FBI's steps to correct things that happened before he even came on board, right? That, that did not happen on his watch. Uh, and, you know, then he's taken some steps to, you know, uh, ensure that he has a new leadership team in place and that the issues that, um, you know, in the case of, let's say, the FISA situation that got some attention, at least when I first came on board in particular, there was a series of sort of, you know, straightforward communications with the public and Congress and others to ensure that people understood that uh, what had happened prior to the director's arrival was unacceptable uh, and should never happen again. But also that the director, when empowered, was taking steps uh, as the new director to, uh, to bring in a new leadership team and to institute 40 different types of corrective measures there. So I think that's an example of where you own something like that, even if it's, uh, you know, as an institution, we own it. And then uh, you come on board and do the best you can, but look, we're going to, we're going to succeed and there's going to be times when we stumble. And I think the most important thing though, is that the public and understands that these are folks that are every day getting up, trying to do their best you know, the vast majority of people here are really working hard and are selfless in their 
and their protecting uh, uh, and their willingness to protect the country and put their lives on the line. And I and I think that when we do stumble, we own it. But I think the real true story of the FBI is largely one of, of expertise, success, dedication, you know, as well as being true to ourselves and maintaining our integrity as much as we can. You talked a little bit about the director, the role of the director. And again, it's kind of a no-win situation, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Some people say the FBI director isn't visible enough. Others say, he's, you know, he's, he's, he should maintain a, a low profile, keep his head down. How do you balance all of that and, and decide when he's going to say, for example, show up at a press conference versus sending the deputy director or sending the head of a field office? And whether he's going to do a particular press interview or, or not, or speak at a conference. How do you work through that with him? I think it's really on a case-by-case basis, but I will just tell you in general, Director Ray is somebody that's focused on the work, right? What you see with him is what you get. You know, he is somebody that uh, is truly focused on the work, wants to make sure that the uh, people that are uh, in the lead investigating crimes uh, and those that are managing them uh, they are also voices for the Bureau to carry forward uh, when there's been some type of development or announcement is appropriate, that they are also voices that can carry it forward. When it's appropriate, the director does make major announcements. He's done you know, inter- interviews. He's done uh, speeches. Uh, I will say that a lot of what um, we've dealt with in the past year and a half has been curtailed, I think, because of uh, COVID. But I do think that he is somebody that if it rises to the level of, of a major uh, FBI announcement. He is, uh, he's, he's done several press conferences and is willing to come out and talk more. I do think though, to your point, it is, you know, it's tricky sometimes. You don't want to, you know, there's a lot of times, one of the things we talk about frequently is um, when we receive criticism, uh, especially unfair criticism. You know, we're constantly being baited by pundits to um, come out and respond on behalf of the, of the Bureau. And sometimes it's just this, the most important thing to do is not respond, especially to stuff that's conspiratorial, irresponsible, not based in fact, right? And we, we want to make sure that the FBI, when we do step out and we address an issue that is something substantive, that is important, it's linked to our mission, and that it's serious when it comes to protecting the public and upholding the Constitution. So I do think that um, we have been very deliberate when we think it's important for the director himself to get out versus having someone else that is uh, well uh, positioned to represent the, the FBI and its great work. Yeah, good point on the uh, sometimes the notion that sometimes the best response is no response, lest uh, the Bureau get, get caught up in this mudslinging and, and it, it, there's an, it's a no-win situation. Brian, as you look back on your tenure and the work of your team, what are some of the, the success stories that you know, from the various units and sections you have that, you know, you you kind of point to and say, yeah, that we, we did that right. That, that worked for us. Um, and it, and it might, it might be the story of, of January 6th and the public, uh, responding so well to the, to the, uh, solicitation of help. But, uh, what, what do you point to and say, yeah, this is, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Well, first of all, I think some of it is stuff that that, you know, the public doesn't see or, or really know about, right? I, I do think our work um, with regard to um, leveraging social media and our digital media uh, to solicit tips to um, identify individuals is, is always a great feeling. When we're able to um, get out uh, some type of information and an individual is apprehended for maybe being involved in a child abduction or something like that, 
you know, and that individual is in custody, that is always super satisfying. I do think that there has been times when we have just had major case announcements, again, talking about our expertise uh, and our special stuff that only the Bureau can bring. Um, that's very satisfying. I, I think, though, that also operating and not missing a beat during COVID was huge for my team. You know, we, we really, um, you know, it's, it's every, I think probably anyone listening to this that worked, uh, you know, remotely knows the challenges of that. But, you know, I have a whole staff of folks that, you know, were able to meet the mission needs and work remotely through the, the worst parts of the pandemic while still doing things that everyone else is doing, you know, juggling personal life, family life, kids and school, and that they met the mission. So I'm actually quite proud that we were able to weather COVID uh, and still um, deal with an extraordinary amount of, of, of things that, that were occurring uh, in the past two and a half years since I've been here. So to me, I'm just very satisfied with the work of public affairs. I do think that uh, we lived through sort of extraordinary times in the past two and a half years. And um, I, I really, again, when I see um, maybe that story that, that, the average person may not see in just one corner of the country where we were able to uh, protect a child or, or rescue a child is that's the satisfaction for me, maybe even more so than some of the, the big national news stories that, that are covered by the major outlets. Well, thank you, Brian, for what you and your team have done during extraordinary, even unprecedented times for not only the FBI, for, but for the nation um, and for, for telling the good stories honestly, about the FBI's mission. Um, we're glad you've served in that capacity. I wish you the, the very best. I also want you to thank, please, the men and women who come to work every day uh, in the Office of Public Affairs to get it right uh, and help the mission succeed. Thank you, Frank. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate your efforts as well and the efforts of your colleagues as well that have uh, that's, you know continued to support us even after having departed. So thank you. Indeed. Thanks for joining us, Brian, and best wishes. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for our public affairs episode. Next time, how about you and me head to Hawaii to explore FBI Honolulu and the feds in the 50th state? The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. The show is engineered by Matt Brousseau with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.